Hello again, and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. It's a pleasure to be with you all again, and especially today because we have a genuine certified captain of industry on the podcast. Chris Griffith is chief executive of Goldfields, the seventh largest gold mining company in the world. It mines in South Africa, Australia, Ghana, Peru, and soon possibly Chile. Before that, Griffith was CEO of Anglo Platinum and then Kumba, the giant South African iron ore producer. But those last two jobs were in the Anglo-American family, and the decision to leave for Goldfields couldn't have been an easy one, but exciting too, because you've arrived in time to pull the switch on a truly massive new renewable energy project at Goldfields' big South Deep mine on the Vidvatisrand later this year. And that's what we are going to talk about, mining, energy, climate, and the industrial future of the country. The South Deep project is, I think, 40 megawatts. That's enough to supply quite a large town uh, with electricity. And it'll supply going on for about 25, 26% of South Deep's power when it's up and running and obviously save the company a lot of money. Can I ask you, Chris, whether you see a day where a mine as big as South Deep can be powered entirely by renewables, wind, solar, and battery? Hi, Peter, and uh, hi to your, to your listeners. Um, yeah, it's a great a great opportunity to reflect on a massive solar plant in a big mine like South Deep. And, and thanks very much for your introduction. So yeah, we we initially launched South Deep at a forty megawatt, um, but because of the efficiency of the panels, um, we said, look, we just buy a little bit more capital, we could actually change that to fifty megawatts. So as it stands now, South Deep will be fifty megawatts. It'll be over twenty percent of its power. And it'll be pretty much all the power that we can consume during daylight hours. And that's the reason why it's sort of capped at about 50 megawatts. Um, so, yeah, we, we're delivering that on time uh, and very much on budget. So it should be commissioned in the third quarter of this year. So that's just a year uh, to be able to construct that plant and we'll be, we'll be up and running. So, but who- and, and you've done that, you've done, you've done that yourselves, right? There's a company, you haven't had. You haven't had to go and get licenses and and apply for terribly tedious things that take out, you know years to to get permission for and regulators and all that sort of thing. This is an in-house project, um, and you've had contractors obviously doing it for you. Yeah, so we, we we did need to go through the regulatory approvals initially when we tried. We wanted to do this through a power purchase agreement, so a third party puts up the capital, runs it. We get a little bit of the saving but they get the majority of the saving to pay for their capital. Um, that regulatory process took well over two years to run. But, the, but you know, when we looked at the financials, it just made a whole lot more sense for us rather to put up the capital. We'll pay that project off. Uh, initially, it was six years. Then it became five years. Now we're going to pay that project off in four years. So 700 million rand of capital investment because of the savings on an annual basis uh, versus the ESCOM uh, tariff, we'll pay that off in in four years. So we decided that actually it was better for us to to fund capital. Given the state of our balance sheet, that's doable. So that's 700 million rand. We are putting up the capital and we will get the savings. That's a bit different to our solar plants that we've run in, in Australia. Those will be those are power purchase agreements. So someone else puts up the capital, right. they run it. We get a little bit of the savings. But after 10 years, then we own those power plants. So that's a different model in Australia. Just given the, the, uh, the, given the 
the nature of ESCOM's uh, uh, tariffs. It just made sense for us to do yeah. it that way. So yeah, that, uh, yeah. we'll do that. And uh, and in in August of this year, in the third quarter, we'll be up and running. But just to give you a sense, I mean, we'll save 130 million rand a year in <laughs> in energy saving. Sorry, it's hard not to yeah, it's hard not to and, laugh. Yeah, but and but just think about the the CO two emissions. We'll save over 110,000 yeah. tons of CO two a year. So this is massive yeah. and a contribution. So to get to your question, Peter, is can we envisage a day that we can see uh, a whole mine like this being powered by uh, by renewables? And I think the answer is yes. Um, at our mine in Australia, Agnew, we've already got, it's not as big, of course, it's not a big underground mine, but we are already powering up to about 60% is coming from renewables. But the big breakthrough we'll have to make at South Deep is around storage because it's no sense just sure. getting a whole lot of power generated and you can't use it in the in the evening or the off-peak periods. Um, so either a combination or probably likely a combination of storage and uh, and of wind. So initially we did not think that the high felt was a great place for wind. Of course, if you you know any of us in South Africa know that if you're down at the coast. You know, either in Cape Town or PE or something, wind is absolute, you know, makes a lot of sense. But if you're up in the high belt, that's not something we normally associate with uh, being able to generate, uh, you know, wind-generated power. But but we've been led to believe, and, and the studies that we've done subsequently have confirmed that, is that 150 meters up in the air, we've got sufficient wind. Yeah, there's a lot happening. Yeah, so and that's quite a new revelation for us. So the answer is, yeah, we think that, that uh, in time to come, and we're doing quite a bit of work now. So we're doing wind studies for this this coming year um, that'll confirm whether or not we'll be able to put up wind power. And it does seem that we've got wind speeds higher in the in the afternoon and evening periods. So that would be a great combination uh, to um, to our solar. So yeah, we can we can see a time when, uh, and that's actually our plan when we will have a hundred percent of the power coming from renewables. Because I, I asked the question because there's such a reluctance to talk about the possibility of going from where we are now to 100% renewable. Not, you know, we, we see 2050 as carbon neutral, sort of rather than carbon, you know, zero. And, and, um, I just wondered what, where the reluctance is from. I know, you know, we're all of a generation, perhaps, well, I'm of an older generation than you, but, but, that we're cautious and conservative and worried about batteries, you know, will they work? And, and, you know, you have a special responsibility. You're putting people very far deep down into the ground. How do you get them up in a hurry? And ESCOM worries about dispatchable power when it needs it. Um, how do we, how do you get past the concern that batteries might not be good enough? I think we've got to do the same as we did with solar. I mean, initially, solar wasn't anywhere nearly as competitive as uh, as grid power, and yet there was a combination of people sort of investing into the technology to get enough scale that then the, tech, the price of the technology drops. So the efficiency improves and the price drops with scale. So I think that's the solution, Peter. It wasn't always the case. that, uh, And I think we've got to have faith in our ability to get the technology right. So we know, for example, that storage is still a way off. But storage is not new, and we have got large-scale batteries 
um, perhaps not yet of the size that we want. And hydrogen, of course, is something that's developing very quickly now. And I think there will be technology, but at what it requires, I think there's enough done to know the technology works. Now we've got to put enough, we've got to put enough investment into it so that we can start driving down the uh, improving the efficiencies and driving down the cost. So I was asked a fairly similar question at the mining in Darbo a couple of days ago, and I said I'm actually feeling quite comfortable about this. So we've got in our own trajectory that we've mapped out over the next 10 years to show the majority of our reductions, and it's not carbon neutral, it's actually carbon reductions so that we get to net zero. So, for example, our target in the next 10 years is to get a net 30% reduction. Now, the problem with goldfields, which is a good problem, but a bad one for if, for emissions, is that the company's growing. So for us to get a net 30% down in the next 10 years, we've got to reduce 50% absolute emissions. So we plotted out how we can see that happening because I think society are genuinely worried that there's a lot of arm waving and people saying all sorts of things, but there's very little substance behind actually how we're going to do that. So we've plotted out and shown society, well, I mean, some of it will move around a bit, but we can see how that's possible to achieve. So yeah. we, we can see and about 80% of that reduction comes from renewables and about 20% comes from reduction of emissions from vehicles and from storage. So we haven't, we haven't sort of bet the farm on that. But what we, ha- what we are saying is that the technology, uh, if we invest in it now, by the time we need that in five, 10 years' time, it'll be there. And we've got to, yeah. we've got to back ourselves to do that. And I think we can't wait for in a collectively society because we are society. So we can't yeah. hope that someone else is going to do this. And I think particularly in the mining companies and with the, the OEMs, the equipment manufacturers, yeah, yeah. you know, everyone is now working together. And I think that's actually what makes the difference. So we've got to back ourselves. We've got to be prepared to spend a little bit of money. And we've got to all work together. So it's not just one company doing that. Then we back ourselves that we can make this happen. Yeah. I mean, your old, your old company, Anglo-American, is going to, says it's going to install... 5,000 megawatts of um, renewable power here by 2030. And that's an enormous amount. That's bigger than Madupi. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, if it ever got to its full, if it ever got to its full strength. So it's a, that's a very ambitious target. And I presume that they can do that for their entire operation because if I'm right, and I'm not a mining journalist, they're no longer underground in South Africa. Is that right? I mean, how do, how do they get to 100% for a mining company? So they have to dig underground well i mean you can put enough renewables on surface that you can uh, that you can eliminate both the need for scope 2 emissions that's the emissions you get in from from escom and to eliminate the the yeah. vehicle emissions and um, so for example the release yeah. of the hydrogen truck is a very good example about how they plan to to change emissions from diesel emissions or, or diesel to hydrogen power, yes. which is zero emissions. So that's an example uh, of, yeah. of how companies are, are really investing in potential future technology. So it's not yet cost competitive, yeah. but it's that kind of approach that Aplo is taking and many other companies. Yeah. And will it, one day, will, it, will it matter one day, Chris, whether you can actually say, look, the gold produced by our company is carbon-free um, or has no carbon footprint? Will it be 
you know, will it be green gold, as it were? I mean, will that will it will you have better trade privileges or better access to markets, for instance, or do you expect to um, by um, by going green, as it were? In other words, not just your balance sheet and 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 your financial performance, but your future markets as a company. People are going to want green products, aren't they? Bruce, I'm, I've heard this and, and, and I've heard people talk about it. I'm not a believer that you can get a dollar or two extra on the price of your commodity. I don't think that that happens. And actually, yeah. the moment you start thinking like yeah. that, actually what ends up is that in some circumstances, you get your price minus a number. What I, what I do think happens mm. is I, I think that that investors are just easily able to invest in your company. And therefore, I think your share prices will will trade at a premium to companies that are not investing and not playing their part uh, because the ultimately pension funds will say well i yeah. don't want you to invest in companies that are that are that have got all these carbon emissions so i personally don't think it comes in your revenue line yeah. i think it comes in your market cap by by you know getting a premium so people will trust you that you are doing the right things and people that aren't i think ultimately will be punished by uh, by yeah. by investors and pension funds as yeah. example. The big debate in South Africa is obviously this thing they call a just transition. It's a pathway from our dependence on coal-fired power from ESCOM to, to carbon zero or net carbon neutrality by 2050. And the number of people that I understand are in the coal value chain. The number I see quoted most often is 88,000. And the debate seems to focus very heavily on saving somehow saving those jobs or or reinventing those jobs um, rather than the 25 million or so people who don't have a job at all or are on welfare in South Africa. And it just strikes me that we may talk about a just transition as if it's a fair and wonderful thing, but we haven't described what the just transition should look like. And I wanted just to talk to you about that a little bit. You know, in my opinion, and this is me, um, the just transition should be as quick as possible. Get it over with. Um, and you know, don't drag it out. What I suspect parts of the government might want to do is to drag it out because it's politically difficult. Um, but technically, we could do much. We could do what we need to do much more quickly than we plan to do it. Uh, look, I, I I must admit, Peter, I'm not an expert at just transition, and I know that coal miners are spending a lot of their their daytime hours thinking about this, and probably their nighttime hours as well. The way I think about it is that. Because I seem to be, and I often wonder if I'm just not thinking about this deeply enough, but I'm less worried about this because there is less investment into coal mines, you know, into life extensions of coal mines. So coal in itself in South Africa will have a declining trend going forward, whether we like it or not and whether we are investing in renewables or not, just the investment uh, and the and the fact that those many of those companies are now much smaller companies, so they're not no longer held by Glencore, Anglo American, uh, and BHP and and Rio. So they're held by smaller companies who don't have the balance sheets to be able to invest in a long term replacement. So I think you, what you see, and banks don't want to do that either, and shareholders don't want to do that. So what I think you see in any event is you see a declining trend, and most of that coal will go to ESCOM. ESCOM will need power stations. Uh, and they won't disappear overnight, but they absolutely should be seeing a decline. What we should stop is some of these absolutely useless power stations that are always broken, always consume massive amounts of 
uh, of uh, of capital and uh, and working cost, and actually make they they put the whole of ESCOM viability under pressure. So I think over time, in any event, you should see a reduction, and I think we shouldn't. Uh, I think we shouldn't stress too much about that. That's going to come about whether we have renewables or not. And therefore, I think we should just be getting on with the renewables so we can get to a point that we focus on storage because it's the storage and our ability to transform and to capture the renewables, to use it in off-peak periods, that'll reduce our uh, our, our, um, our baseline number so we can actually start switching off some of these these uh, completely out of date uh, coal, uh, you know, coal fired. I mean, there, are, there, there are sort of plans to do that. I think, if I'm not mistaken, ESCOM is going to close its Kamati power station later this year, um, and and then build um, a solar farm on there with batteries and 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 other other good things. But they need to do it at a on a on a pretty vast scale. Yeah. Um, but the you know what's interesting about the debate about a just transition is is the sort of period of transition. What happens in that period? Because what, a lot of people, including um, uh, including the the government, um, including um, the National Business Initiative, um, want to put gas in there as a as a trans, as a sort of transient fuel. Um, somehow that we build a gas infrastructure. Uh, that won't end up being stranded when it's you know when when we get to 2050. Um, and the NBI proposal was that we create. I don't know whether you've had time to read it. It's very long. Um, uh, but where we create a couple of ports, uh, terminals, a number of ports, and the the the, um, the liquefied natural gas is brought in as uh, in bulk carriers and then regassed. And put into the system and sent to um, sent to a, a whole new infrastructure that will burn it and um, put power onto the um, onto the grid. And it strikes me as being an incredibly ambitious and the, the British would call it brave. And what they would actually mean would be really, really silly. What's your opinion? I mean, is that is gas a viable transition fuel for us? I just do not see that. I mean, you know, the fact is, it's not like we're sitting on a whole lot of gas. So this means that we've got to bring gas from elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got to put all this infrastructure in place. I'd like to see the maths and how that stacks up against small modular nuclear reactors. I mean, I, I personally, and this is probably also a swear word, but I personally believe that we need, um, you know, we're going to have one or two uh, our newest power stations, which will be coal-fired. And that'll yeah. keep some of those jobs in. I think we've yeah. we've got some nuclear that has done well for South Africa. I think yeah. uh, a new uh, style of of nuclear power stations, smaller modular reactors in different parts of the country, uh, backed up by a, a massive renewable and storage capacity. And I think that suite of uh, of solutions is a much better solution, yeah. in my view, than trying to bring in gas and its associated pipeline, which is not reducing. Uh, the greenhouse gas uh, problem that we have, and and you know we're just kicking that can down the road, but then spend yeah. an incredible amount of money that we don't have on on something that nobody wants, and which will be obsolete by the time it fun starts functioning. Exactly, and we're dependent then on on other countries for delivering that to us. So you know, and it's not as yeah. if that that gas is on tap yet. 
I mean, we've just yeah. seen some of the, the issues that they've had up in North Mozambique. Yeah. So, yeah, Peter, I'm I'm not convinced that that is the right solution. I'm very happy to hear you say that because I I, I agree with you. I wouldn't mind seeing some small modular nuclear power uh, plant in this country. I don't know how much we're talking about, three or four thousand megawatts, um, uh, as um, uh, as a sort of base load, I suppose, you would, if you want to call it that. But you know, even that might be obsolete when you get to when batteries really kick in and really start functioning. We find you know that you can actually produce solid state batteries and 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 the interesting thing about battery power obviously you don't save it up at night the saving is done during the day which changes the equation a little bit let's just move on a little bit at the mining in daba in cape town you were and not for the first time made the point that in fact mining is not that difficult an industry in south africa once you're up and running i didn't read the whole of the business story but i presume that what what you were meant was getting Getting up and running is the hard part, um, and and maybe you know, maybe an explanation for why we are now seventy fifth out of eighty four jurisdictions in the Fraser Institute rankings. How did that go down? Do you think? I mean, what are you? How, what's your reading of, of the Fraser rating? Look, you know, I think the one thing, the moment that you're in South Africa and you sort of push back against the, the Fraser rating, people say to you, well, you know, are you just blind or naive to the problems that we have in South Africa? So, yes, we do have problems in South Africa. And I think we, you know, whenever I'm asked that question, I say, you know, government should be doing much more about the crime around this economic sabotage of stealing copper. And, you know, and some of that stuff just feel like, the government should really wake up and start taking leadership and doing something about it. I mean, the fact that you can blockade highways and blockade, you know, the country. My, my, personal, my, my personal view is that we should never have allowed it to get to this point and, and it will require strong leadership, but we can turn that around. So I'm, I'm not naive and I live here like you do. Um, you know, we live in this country and we are not immune to its challenges. But having said that, this is not the most difficult mining jurisdiction in the world to operate in. You know, at, at the moment, in almost every jurisdiction that we operate in, except Australia, we're seeing governments want to, are starting nationalization debates. They're starting debates around increasing taxes, making it more difficult for, for, um, for environmental licenses. We're not having those debates here in South Africa. Uh, and, uh, and actually, if you're up and running, those you're not faced to those kind of problems the way you are elsewhere. So the point that I was making is if you put that in the greater scheme of things, actually this country isn't that difficult a mining country to operate in, and we should actually acknowledge that, and we should actually see some of that reflection in the uh, in our Fraser rankings. And and I think it's perplexing as to why we're not. But then at the same time, for example, things like our cadastral system, the fact that we can talk for five or 10 years with a rubbish cadastral system and not fix it, and then even acknowledging it and then saying you're going to fix it, it still takes five years and it's still not fixed. Now, that kind of stuff shouldn't be, we shouldn't have those problems. We should have it fixed. We should have one of the best cadastral systems in the world. We should make it easy to explore. And those things are actually in our wherewithal to fix and our and the DMRE is not fixing them. And until such time they fix them, they're never going to get people saying, hey, this is an easy country to come into. 
So I guess I'm sort of saying, you know, a couple of mixed mixed things. So first of all, I'm saying, yeah, we got challenges in South Africa. Some of those are, are really difficult, like unemployment rates and those sort of things. But there are other things that are fixable, and it doesn't have to be as messy as it is. Um, there are things in our mining code that we we should be able to fix a lot of these things, and like the cadastre and the and the exploration should be much easier than it is, and we should be welcoming yeah. and attracting people. And we don't know how to do that in South Africa. We make it hard, no matter how much we talk about reducing red tape, and we're going to put you know a, a guru of red tape in, and we're going to do that. Our, our politicians are not geared to think about making it attractive to people to come into their country. Yeah. And when you when you know what it looks like when it's great, you go to Australia, you go to some of these other mining countries, and it's just like it's so easy. Um, so that's why they get the exploration. That's why they get people wanting to invest. There. Sorry, Chris, just to explain to people, the cadastral system is basically a, a detailed map, right, of property, where the lines are and where where can where what can be done and is it necessarily an aerial photograph of the country that you take, or is it a drawn map? Is it a? I mean, how do you know that? If, sorry, I don't want to deviate. You were on a very good. You were on a roll. No, 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 it's okay. I mean, look, a cadastral system for those. Yeah, perhaps I should have just not used that. You know, that lingo. Or, but it's really both a visual, uh, a visual expression of the country's mineral resources. And a library right, yeah. of all the things that, because yeah. if you explore, you've got to put your data into that library. So we give our data to, yeah. so we actually have incredible data, some of which we don't use, and that should be available yeah. for others then when they want to come in. So they'll be able to look at different minerals, look at yeah, parts yeah. of the country that are not owned, and they'll say, yeah. oh, I think there's an opportunity there. They can look at some data, and they'll look at that data and say, no, I think I can use some of that. What it does, yeah, it, yeah. it's, it's okay. meant to give you a head start so that when you invest some money in exploration, you're not going in blind. And that's what we're not getting right. So when you do come here, to, when you do come here looking to invest, you are coming blind in a way. Yeah. Because our, our cadastral system isn't good enough. Yes. Yeah, so that's the one thing. And then, you know, the, the fact that we're also sitting on 4,000 applications for various rights that haven't been processed in years, that's also a kind of thing that we shouldn't have. We shouldn't have. I mean, they should be. We should be able to say, "Okay, we've got this problem. Let's put extra resources in for a while, you know, and work through that backlog. And then yeah. we don't need those extra resources, so that people who already know where they want to mine, they already have got some ideas of what they want to do. They're ready to invest, and actually, our system's blocking them because we're not giving them those rights. Those are the kind of things that it shouldn't be. That should. That is in the wherewithal of the department to fix. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would Goldfields invest here again if you found a prospect? In other words, I think what I'm when you when you're asked to make the investment case for South Africa, what do you? What's your answer? So, uh, Peter, I've uh, said that South Africa is investable. You can invest in South Africa. You can get your money out. Um, you can pay dividends uh, if you've got challenges. You can go to the court. So it is an investable country. The fact that gold, though, is a very, very mature market, and there's very few new gold opportunities that are available in South Africa. That's just a fact of the fact we've been mining gold for 100 years. But, you know, when I was in platinum or PGMs, when I was in, in, uh, in iron ore, we were absolutely investing in, in this country. So I would invest in this country as a, as a miner. 
um, and as a mining company. Uh, I just don't see it for our company because we are a gold mining company that there are opportunities to invest. In. But if there were, then we would absolutely consider that uh, here. Obviously, the world's in a difficult place at the moment, uh, Ukraine and all of that sort of thing and COVID. Commodity prices have been rising, as you would know very well. I mean, all all of your old all of your old commodities have been doing brilliantly as well. Um, but do you think the boom has run out of steam, or does it still have legs? No, I think the the boom's uh, still got legs, uh, and I and I and I I don't think that it's a boom anymore. I think it's sustained yeah. higher demand for most commodities. I mean, the the reality is that not yeah. all commodities will be equal in the world going forward. And some commodities will be under pressure going forward. But the majority of commodities, the world needs needs mining, the world needs commodities. And I think what the world doesn't really understand is this drive for renewables and what it means requires about four to seven times more minerals than we had before. So it requires a massive amount of extra copper, nickel, steel, the world needs more. Um, And so we're going to have to mine more, find more in a in a world where where you know commodities are getting mined. So we're going to need massive investments. I don't think it's a boom. And I think most commodities are the demand is going to be very strong uh, for for a lot longer than perhaps most people think. The Treasury would be happy to hear you say that because they need the money and they they they've been getting this kind of uh, little sort of Christmas surprise or surprise each year um, uh, from the taxes that mining companies pay because the prices are so good. But China's coming out of going to come out of COVID. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine will end, and there'll be big booms all around. I, I suspect um, the problem here, as you know, though, Chris, is, is unemployment. It's at unimaginable levels. Do, do, are there any obvious answers to it other than? you know, digging in and trading your way out of it. Yeah, we, we've spoken about the solutions. We know what some of those are. It's never going to be easy. But the fact is we need to create economic-led growth. Uh, and and there's, you don't do that by not doing the right things. So uh, we know what we need to do in this country. We've had plan upon plan upon plan of things that we need to do. I think we either try over complicated by getting the plan like 99.9% perfect instead of 80% perfect and then rather focus on the getting on with it and we are bad getting on with people yeah. in South Africa we we are we we you know yeah. and I, and I, you you look at the president's announcement when he just stepped in and he said now we're going to increase the renewables to 100 megawatts it was easy he made the decision it was an executive yeah. decision Everybody welcomed it and said, like, thanks, let's get on with it. Yeah. And uh, and I think there's so many more opportunities like that, not just from the president, but from his ministers as well. You know, business have declared and demonstrated, you know, through COVID that they were willing to work alongside government. So this is not throwing stones at government. You know, business have been ready to go and work alongside government, and there are opportunities to do that. But we just need to yeah. get on with it. We've talked about this infrastructure-led growth. We, we can, can create jobs. Uh, we need to get on and sort other things out. We need to make it easy for people to come to South Africa. We need to stop this nonsense of xenophobia. Uh, we need to stop crime. Uh, those are the kind of things that you know, I think we we can do, and we can do that together. And we we just are so reluctant yeah. to, to do that. To do the necessary. So 
as a South African living here with your families here and, and mine is here too, um, how optimistic are you, scale of one to ten, that we can turn this around? Um, yeah, I'm in like a six to seven. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not three or four. No, uh, but we've got challenges, and unfortunately, if you look at our politicians, uh, you know, and and they just we we not we not at the eights and nines that we should and could be. Yeah, but but yeah, I'm here, and uh, and I still think it's a fantastic country to live in, and uh, you know, I'm a proud South African. But I'm not naive to some of our yeah. to some of our challenges. I've enjoyed this so much, Chris, and thank you uh, really, really, very, very much for your time. I know you're traveling, so travel safe and and um, and keep safe. And the same goes to listeners. Thank you for joining me, and I'll be back with another episode of podcast from the edge at the same time next week. Stay well. Mm-hmm.